Thank you, uh, Pastor Andy. It's great uh, in these days, especially to uh, to sing and to pray these um, activities, these acts of worship uh, remind us of what is truly important and help reorient us as we begin uh, yet another unusual week. We'll be this morning in Acts chapter 6. If you have a Bible near you or an app, feel free to open that up. And in just a couple of minutes, we'll uh, begin by reading uh, the passage. Before we jump into uh, the sermon today, I wanted to take just, just a moment and speak to uh, several things going on. Um, as you know, uh, I'm sure have seen, Governor Ducey extended the stay-at-home orders through May 15th, and so we're just continuing to, to plug away as a church family and doing uh, as many ministries virtually as possible. So you'll uh, be able this week, of course, to participate in uh, the connection classes that were this morning and then the, the virtual gathering now. Lots and lots and lots of groups are continuing to gather, the small groups, gospel communities, uh, the youth been meeting every Wednesday and Friday, kids and preschoolers. So it's been encouraging to see uh, how many of you are remaining um, engaged. And um, even though it's not the same as being in person, you're still uh, putting forth uh, the effort to tune in and, and be a part of what's happening. So I want to thank you for that. Also hearing lots of stories of uh, members caring for each other's needs and uh, running errands, uh, helping get groceries for those who are more vulnerable uh, and susceptible to uh, to potentially getting sick. So just thank you, church, for uh, continuing to follow the Lord and uh, fulfill your commitments to one another that we've made in membership during this really unusual time. Um, what will happen on May 16th? Well, uh, the Lord knows. The rest of us, we're not, we're not sure yet. Uh, so your elders are are praying and planning, preparing, working with the staff and deacons to, to try and uh, plan next phases of ministry. So um, it may be for a while that even after we're uh, permitted to get back together in, in smaller groups, um, not you know the hundreds that we're used to, maybe we need to do uh, a virtual gathering and uh, a few people here at the same time. We'll just have to kind of see what numbers are put forward and what the what the transitional periods are like, but uh, be watching for uh, emails as as decisions get made and in the coming weeks. And would sure appreciate your prayers as as those things are um, underway. Um, you may have seen uh, this last week that we launched a new portion of the website in which uh, you can go to churchonmail.org and click on Jesus is better. And there's going to be in the coming weeks more and more content being put out there. You'll, um, you'll notice in the last few days that uh, Pastor Tad wrote a great article uh, called Why Am I Angry? And the idea is helping us identify uh, that an experience we're going through uh, right now. Many, many times, many of us are finding that we're, we're unusually frustrated or angry. So take a look at that article if you haven't seen it yet. And, and Eric uh, Naylor wrote just an excellent uh, prayer there that you'll, you'll also be able to view couple videos and uh, in the coming week we'll be adding in addition to more of those articles prayers videos we'll also be adding a podcast so be watching for that and more than just kind of dumping out uh, more and more and more content our hope is that um, as brothers and sisters we could engage in that material that it would give us a a common language some common themes 
And then as we are on the phone with each other um, and, or, or meeting up uh, in really small groups, two or three, whoever you're happen, happening to see uh, with a roommate or a family member, that that material gives you good things to talk about, good ways to minister to each other. And so they begin conversations. So uh, be watching for that in the coming days and uh, just know of our, our prayers. I sure miss you. Uh, this is the eighth Sunday this morning that we have had virtual gathering instead of um, in person. For a lot of us, as long as we've followed Jesus, we've never gone that long without gathering physically with the people of God. Um, even if you've had a, a major surgery or a baby, uh, many of us, it's, it, it's never been that long that we've been away. And uh, sure, in praying that uh, the Lord would be uh, warming our hearts and encouraging us, keeping us sustained in this time of, of absence in which we're providentially hindered, and that uh, just as soon as possible, we're able safely to get back together. So thanks for watching this morning. I know it's not near the, the uh, emotional experience of being with people physically, and yet we trust that uh, doing something certainly is better than nothing. So continuing to pray for you. We'd love to hear from you if you've got any needs. So uh, please be reaching out to, uh, to you gospel community leaders, uh, staff members, elders. We'd love to be engaged uh, with you. But for today, we're going to continue in our series in Acts. We are uh, working our way uh, passage by passage through this great book. Uh, if you're new with us as, as a church family, we believe the scriptures to be God's word, that this is how we hear from God and know that we're hearing from him, that uh, the Lord always speaks in accordance with what he said in his scriptures. So we've been working our way through this book in the Bible called Acts. We've called it uh, the triumph of the word of God. Acts is about how uh, the word spread from just a tiny few who believed uh, literally all over the ancient world and is still spreading today. And this study brings us uh, providentially this morning to Acts chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 7 of Acts chapter 6. And uh, Shane Wolf, who helps lead one of these small groups that we call Gospel Communities, is going to be reading for us now from home. Thank you, uh, Shane. So uh, those of you who are texting me right now, as Shane was reading the scriptures, saying that you miss me too, I want to thank you. That's really sweet. But stop it. You're supposed to be listening to the passage. Um, Shane, we may have to have you read it again because we're getting so, I'm getting so many texts. Um, just kidding, brother. Thank you for those of you who are texting me. That's very kind. And now that I've brought it up, I'm probably going to get a lot more. So um, that may not have been the smartest move, but kind of you to reach out. Um, if, if you develop a, a romanticized view of the church and and expect perfection, then you're, you're going to find yourself sorely disappointed. There are no perfect churches. And even if one existed, you wouldn't be able to join it because then it wouldn't be perfect anymore. That there are no perfect churches because on this side of heaven, there are no perfect people. And in the words of one author, uh, we all come with a, quote, as is, unquote, 
tag. We, we're all works in progress. God is, is in the process of, of chiseling out of each one of us the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that, that work of art, that full Christ-likeness, won't be complete, won't, won't be finished until we die or Jesus returns. And so that means that just like there are imperfect yet sincere people aiming to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be imperfect but sincere churches. Um, if we have problems personally, then of course, if you put people who have problems together, you're going to end up with more problems collectively. Now, Acts chapter 2 and 3 and 4 beautifully describe uh, what the church can be, what it, what it ought to be. These are some of the most powerful and brilliant passages in the whole Bible aiming to describe for us how it all began, what the church was like in its very infancy. And in many ways, while we're not supposed to try to manufacture their experiences, that's, that's not what those chapters are for, they do give us some of, the, some of the values or the aspirations of the people of God. They do show us what life together as a church can be like when we're submitted to the Lord. And yet, as we moved past chapter 4 into chapter 5, we saw a few weeks ago that a serious problem occurred. There was, there was deceit and greed in the body, at least among some of the body. And that reminds us, brothers and sisters, that when one part of the body is struggling with something, then the whole body knows it. The whole body's affected. The whole body struggles. Now, as we make our way past chapter 5 into chapter 6, then we'll encounter yet another challenge. We'll encounter another opportunity for growth, but also another time of vulnerability for this church in its infancy. And that challenge in and of itself is serious. But there is something underneath that challenge. And that's what we're going to really spend a lot of our time together this morning considering. There, there's a far graver threat, not only to the ongoing church, but to its very survival. That's what's present in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. As you graciously give of your time today to look at a screen again, and uh, I stare at a, a, a camera, um, we will hopefully together, nonetheless, find the Lord encouraging us, encouraging us in, in all the ways that we're experiencing health as a church family. And may God instruct us on how we can make progress in areas where we may be less healthy. Now, if you consider these uh, seven verses this morning, you'll find essentially that we can, we can uncover the meaning, we can discern what's being said through three headings, if you will. The first thing we'll talk about together is that there was a presenting problem. And that presenting problem is what usually gets talked about the most in this passage. And so we'll spend some time there. Then we'll look at the grave threat 
and it's what's easy to miss. We'll try to look at it and understand it together. And then finally, uh, we'll spend a little bit of time considering the solution. So if, you, if you're keeping notes, you can write down there was a presenting problem, a, a grave threat, and then a divine solution. Let's start first together with the presenting problem. The presenting problem. Verse 1 describes it very clearly. As the church grew, the first sign of a measure of factionalism began to occur. As, as the church continued to grow, even in the midst of that miraculous growth being brought about by God, there was an attendant increase in problems. Specifically, some of the Hellenist widows were being slighted in the daily distribution of food compared with the Hebrew widows. Now that cleared it all up, right? Well, no, that's not language we use. Our circumstances are pretty different. So it's, this is going to require a little bit of description or explanation. So just for a couple of minutes, let me try to explain exactly what was going on. And hopefully that will show the life that, that's present in the text. You'll look in verse 1 and you'll see the word uh, Hellenists. Now, Hellenists were, were what we might call Greek Jews. Hellenists were what we might call Greek Jews. While the Hebrews were what we might call Hebrew Jews. Now, if you're even more confused, no, that wasn't my goal. Just give me a second, and I'll try to explain what that means. Strictly speaking, the, the Hellenists and the Hebrews were both ethnically Jewish. But one group was culturally and ideologically aligned more with Greeks than they were with their ethnically fellow Jews. And so really, ethnically, they were the same, but culturally, linguistically, um, ideologically, the, the Hellenists were more Greek-like and the Hebrews were more traditionally Jewish-like. The Hellenists were Jews who spoke Greek as their mother tongue, while the Hebrews spoke Aramaic as their mother tongue. Now still, that, that's very, very far removed from us culturally. But think of it this way. The Hellenists were descendants of people who had moved away from Jerusalem or moved away from Israel. And they had absorbed some of their host culture's language and likely some of their thought patterns and customs. And then eventually they had moved back to Israel. While the, the Israels or the Hebrews had either never left or they had come back much, much, much sooner. And they had retained the traditional Hebrew tongue and Hebrew customs. They had retained a certain kind of thought and culture and language. The Hebrews in the first century in Jerusalem would have been the majority culture. They would have been the traditional Jews, while the Hellenists would form a significant minority. And while that was true of the broader city and the broader country, it very likely in Jerusalem 
would have been true of the church itself. And so picture that, if you will. You have in the church two groups that very likely would not have gotten along very well or have integrated with each other very closely. They would have seen one group as the majority and another as the minority in normal Jewish life. And yet, because of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, they had now been brought together to make up the same local church. And yet, there was, even though it didn't, it didn't emerge in chapter 2 or chapter 3 or chapter 4 or chapter 5, there is here in chapter 6 a, a crack beginning to form in their experience of the unity that God had given them in Christ. There was a, a majority emerging and a minority being hindered. Now, churches today don't ever struggle with issues of background or culture or preference or race, right? No, no. of course, this remains a significant challenge for the church today. It remains in some ways a challenge for us at, of Churchill Mill. It's amazing that there's really nothing new under the sun. You're talking about the very first church developing and struggling with an underlying issue that most every church, if not every single church, has to continue to think about. Now, while Luke, the author of Acts, gives us no detail about the specific reasons for the conflict or the, the underlying motive or motivation that was causing the problems, it's not hard to figure out what very likely would have been happening. Whether through, through innocent oversight, if, if you're an optimist, that's the way you probably think about Acts 6. Innocent oversight. Or if you're a pessimist, maybe you think through willful neglect. And which one it was, there's no way for us to know. It's impossible. Yet it, it had to be somewhere on the spectrum between the two. Either innocent oversight by the majority or willful neglect by the majority. Either way, the majority culture's widows were getting their needs met while the minority cultures did not feel the same. That was the fundamental issue. When a church of the Lord Jesus Christ is healthy, there's not a majority getting their needs met and a minority feeling slighted. That's not what happens. But friends, if we peel back even that, that top layer of the onion and, and get more down at the core, when a church is healthy, there's not even a relating to one another principally in people groups we belong to for cultural or ethnic reasons. We don't even think that way. We relate to each other as equals, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Because we've been united to Jesus, we understand ourselves to be a new people, one in Christ no longer divided by the things that kept us separated before the Lord Jesus brought us together. 
equal yet different, united not by a common ethnicity or language, not by a common background, but simply by the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ has saved us, by a shared experience of coming to know God through Christ. Now that doesn't mean all of our our backgrounds and differences are erased. No, it's that even through those differences, we're brought together in Christ and in a variety of different ways, variety of different backgrounds, variety of different opinions and personalities, there becomes a new culture that forms. The church forms a new people group, if you will, in which our own distinctive colors and shapes and experiences and personalities are not erased, but they no longer are the defining characteristic of what makes us who we are. No, we're in Christ. And this first church, at least to some degree, had begun to lose sight of that. Whether, again, it was through remaining deep-seated preference for Aramaic-speaking Jews, or through the majority not working hard enough to show inclusion to the minority. Whatever the reason, some Greek-speaking widows were not getting their fair share of daily food. And in the ancient world, widows were incredibly vulnerable to severe hardship and poverty. You see, they were dependent in every way upon the mercy of family members. And if they didn't have family members to take care of them, then they had no one except for the church of Jesus Christ. And so one of the things the church was to do was rally around them and meet their needs. The Old Testament was full of references to the people of God being called on to take care of the widows among them. And the early church didn't give up on that, uh, that distinctive. They, they brought it forward. They understood that to be an ongoing instruction of God. And so they were to daily provide food for the widows. If a widow didn't have family, then she would have been in an incredibly precarious position. Today, as um, people are uh, 30 million plus are unemployed, then those unemployed have been able to go and apply for benefits where they could receive a, a small amount of money from the government. And that is helping pay for some essential needs. It's not enough. It's not all that could be done, but it is something. Well, Israelite society had nothing like that. And if you were a Jew, if you were a Hellenist, if you were in the city of Jerusalem, you were a widow, you had no extended family, then there was no governmental means through which you could be provided with food stamps. There was no social security benefit that you could draw. And so you were dependent for your very survival on the mercy of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Friend, if you are in a place of vulnerability today, you can know that God is particularly concerned 
with your plight. His attention is drawn not towards those who get all the glitz and the glamour in the world. His attention is particularly drawn for those in need. And that's one of the reasons Acts 6 is in the Bible, because the attention of God was drawn towards these few Hellenist widows who were not being sufficiently taken care of. God shows deference to those who know of their spiritual need and to those who know of their physical need. Whatever, for whatever the reason, a rift was forming in this first church in Jerusalem. And the unity of the body and the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ was susceptible in this moment to being at risk of falling apart. Now notice that verse 1 uses the word complaint. The Hebrew uh, word connected to this in the Old Testament often used uh, was a Hebrew word that uh, sounded like murmuring. And so in the New Testament, here when Luke wrote Luke chapter 6, he used a Greek word that is the equivalent, and it means to murmur or to complain. There was a, a murmuring developing among the Hellenists. Now, whether they were responding the right way or not, there was still a, 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 a murmuring. And brothers and sisters, many of us unfortunately have experienced that when a murmuring begins to happen in the church, if it's left unaddressed, then that murmuring can sour an entire church. It can turn putrid, a good, strong fellowship. Maybe you've experienced that in a previous church. Maybe you've experienced that in, in some way in our church. Murmuring among the saints, left unattended, grows like gangrene and it destroys all the healthy tissue in the body of Christ. Friends, when we have points of difficulty with each other, when there's a majority not taking care of the minority, when there's a minority feeling slighted by the majority, whatever those issues are, it's important that we be attendant to working through those issues in order to reconsider and come around the unity that's already ours in Christ. We simply can't let murmuring go unnoticed. Maybe in a, a way, by, by way of application this morning as we consider this text, we can consider if, if you're one prone to murmuring, that you would ask yourself, is there grounds for that murmuring? Or is it just a complaining out of personal preference? And, Friend, if, if there is grounds for that murmuring, then let's engage each other around those issues. Let's not sweep them under the rug. Let's have conversation. Let's set up Zoom meetings. Let's send thoughtful letters and emails. Let's have meaningful conversation in hopes that the issues would be resolved. Those things can become quite serious. In this text, in Acts chapter 6, the widows not having their needs met 
was beginning to expose or beginning to cause an issue that really needed to be resolved. Now, all that sounds pretty serious, doesn't it? Sounds real serious. And yet, don't miss that it's not the grave threat in this passage. That doesn't actually come until verse 2. The, the presenting problem threatened to cause something far, far, far worse. And that thing that's far worse is easy to miss. So let me read it again. It's what verse 2 says. Acts chapter 6, verse 2. Then the twelve summoned together the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Well, that is the grave threat. As the apostles considered the the legitimate and important need of feeding the widows and preserving the God-given unity of the church, they also saw as they looked out ahead, as leaders are supposed to do, they saw a grave threat looming. If they, these founders of the church, if they allowed themselves to get consumed by the day-to-day ministry demands of a growing congregation, then there would be no time left for the careful study of the Old Testament and for the preaching and teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ and for bathing all of that work in prayer. You see, to, to do the one would mean that they would require giving up the other and that they simply could not do. The apostles' cardinal responsibility, as verse 2 puts it, was the preaching of the word of God. And that preaching of the word of God was more foundational to the church than the feeding of the widows. Now, that might feel a little jarring to you. I imagine if we were in the same room, I could have seen some odd expressions or some surprise on some of your faces as I said that. Because essentially what the apostles were were saying, if we put it more crassly, is this. We can't get all wrapped up in feeding little old ladies because we got to preach. Now, who says that kind of thing out loud, let alone puts it into the Bible? It is pretty surprising. But let me try to unfold for you why they believed that and why today we should believe something similar. There, there's two important things to grasp if we together this morning would understand what the apostles meant. Number one, so on the one hand, every church must have a gospel culture. Every church must have a gospel culture, meaning biblical doctrine, the right teaching of the Bible, isn't enough. A a church is not simply a standing, talking head, dispensing content. That does not make a healthy church. That's not all that the church is. A church must have a gospel culture. It must be shown 
right doctrine must be shown in a new emergence of behavior. What a church believes must be demonstrated in what a church does. Belief must change behavior. If we put it the way Jesus put it, Jesus said this, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So a a church with a, a murmuring minority and an indifferent majority won't offer credible witness of the risen king for very long. Because in their culture, the culture of the church, they won't be showing anything different than the world. The church must live in such a way that it's authenticating its own message. All the practical ministries of the church matter. They matter because they show love. And they matter because the meeting of needs shows the truthfulness of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. They give credibility to the message. But on the other hand, so number two, the second thing that we've got to remember. Number one is that the church needs a gospel culture. It must have it. But that gospel culture is not fundamentally of first importance. It's the the fruit. So on the other hand, we must consider what the root of the church is. You see, the practical ministry needs being met are not sufficient in and of themselves because they're not what's primary. Would you think with me for a moment about how a church is created and through what means that church is sustained? If you've been tuning in the last several weeks as we've been working our way through Acts, you'll know. The church of Jesus Christ is created by God's word. And the church of Jesus Christ is sustained by that same word. It is God's word that forms and reforms the people of God. It is the scriptures that are foundational. It is all the ministries that are the display of that word being rightly believed and lived in. So think back to Acts chapter 2. The the church came into being as the apostle Peter stood and preached the gospel. Thousands were saved by responding to the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection. Day by day, the church continued through Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 4, Acts 5. And now the disciples were so concerned in Acts 6 that they keep their focus on the word of God because that is the only means by which a healthy church can be created and through which a healthy church can be sustained. The the, the apostles' teaching is the heart-pumping life throughout the body of Christ. The apostles back then and by implication, your pastors today must give themselves to prayer-saturated study and teaching. 
That is their most essential, fundamental responsibility. Their job, if you will, is not principally to administrate and orchestrate programs. No, it's to preach and teach and pray. Why? Not because those ministries are somehow more public or because they're, they're more important. No, it's because they are the foundational lifeblood of the church of Jesus Christ. And so, do you see here the significance of what the apostles were saying, the wisdom in it? It wasn't that they didn't care about the little old ladies. It's that they knew the ministries, all the manifold ministries of a church can only rightly continue if they are given life and fed the nourishment of God's word. Because God's word is created and sustained by the preaching and teaching of the word of God. The apostles knew they must not be consumed with deacon-like work, not because they had a sense of superiority. No, at issue here is simply a matter of calling. The kind of, of praying and preaching they must have done simply could not be done along with the very important needs of administration and ministry leadership and direction and management. The kind of praying and preaching they had to do simply took all their time. If they found themselves, not for a day or maybe even a week, but ongoingly, all wrapped up in making sure the administration of the food and the dispensing of it to the widows, if they found themselves long-term caught up in that, then they wouldn't be able to do their job, the job that Christ had specifically given them. And if they didn't continue that job, then the church would not continue. It's that simple. They'd been given a job to do by Jesus, and therefore they had no liberty no freedom to deviate from preaching, teaching, and praying. God didn't authorize the apostles to serve tables. No, he left that job to be done to others. Brothers and sisters, by, again, by implication, as we think out from this specific occurrence in Acts chapter 6, and those of you who've spent time in your scriptures, let your mind just... Um, wander a little bit and think beyond Acts 6 out into the other books of the New Testament. We know how important the sharing of ministry among the people of God is. It's only as each member do, does what they are gifted to do that the body remains healthy, that the ministry moves ahead, that the mission can be accomplished. As a church grows and issues develop, it must consistently restructure to make sure that at its center is gospel proclamation. But moving out from that right gospel proclamation are all kinds of ministries seeking to meet practical needs in order to adorn the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ 
with good works. The gospel proclamation is at the center, but that's not all the church is. It's not all the church does. Today, when there is a need in the body, be it a, a widow or a single mom or somebody who's unemployed or a college student whose roommate has moved out because they had to go back home because they lost their work and now they cannot make rent. The, the needs go on and on and on. A, a single person right now who lives alone, who isn't working and uh, existing at home with another several people. That there's all kinds of situations today where there are needs present. And part of being a healthy church is laboring together to meet those needs, whether they're physical, emotional, spiritual, psychological. This is the adorning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's physically, tangibly meeting needs. It's helping each other move. It's helping each other figure out how to plug into the resources that the state does provide. It's praying and laboring to help each other find new jobs. It's inviting somebody over who you know is alone for a meal, even knowing that there's a risk right now in doing so. It's doing whatever needs to be done to meet each other's needs. These are, these are all important things the body must do. If we don't do them, then we cause the essential gospel message to be called into question because we don't authenticate it with right, holy, sacrificial living. And yet, all of these many manifold ministries are not what create and sustain a healthy church. The Word does that. And so while there are no apostles today, there are uh, pastors, teachers, elders, whose principal job is that proclamation of the Word. And out from them, there, there are deacons who seek to lead and serve. There are staff members. There are um, other key volunteers who take part in so many ministries week in and week out. I'd love to take in particular a moment this morning to thank those of you who have um, helped us figure out in the last eight weeks, how do we do this, what we're doing right now? Uh, I've never preached to a camera before, um, and we had to learn a bazillion things. And in order to make that happen, there's been so many people who worked hard to bring about that uh, ministry. I want to thank them. Overnight, the pandemic meant that we needed to completely change how we did almost everything without compromising any of our beliefs or our philosophy of ministry. And so for the last eight weeks, you've seen my hairy face a lot, and it's getting more and more hairy. Um, if you like that, feel free to, to write in and tell us. I could use more support. But that's only because there is a group here right now laboring behind the scenes so that your elders can continue to bring the ministry of the word forward. And I want to thank you for that, friends. Thank you.
So this was the grave threat the, the church faced. It's the same threat the church faces today. Will those responsible for the proclamation of God's word allow themselves to be caught up in other important things, other urgent things? And will they neglect the most foundational thing? I hope you'll pray for us that we won't find ourselves saying yes to good things and neglecting the most important things. And I hope you'll, you'll pray that the Lord will continue to provide so many gifted and talented and essential people to help do all of these important things. It only works as we all work together. So that was the grave threat. So we've considered the, the, the principle or the, the, the presenting problem and then the grave threat. And finally, just quickly, let's consider the solution. How did the apostles address this issue? Well, that's what verses three through six describe. I won't take the time to read them, uh, mainly because I can't read the names as good as Shane did. Didn't he do a great job? But uh, as you glance back over those verses, you'll see that the, the solution the apostles developed was to ask the church to select seven people of spiritual maturity and to bring them to the apostles and then the apostles would appoint them for a special work of making sure the widows got fed equitably. Verse 5 lists the name of those men who were appointed or recommended to the apostles. Now interestingly, they all have Greek names. Now given the situation, that's a rather important detail. Perhaps the church in its wisdom saw that clearly communicating to the Hellenists that they were not second-class church members was important in the meeting of this need. It's almost as though there was a recognition. The majority had not done all they could to include the minority, and now they wanted to do so particularly in appointing people from the minority to make sure that minority continued to get fed. It's beautiful. There's a lot of sacrifice depicted in that. These seven would give themselves fully to the pressing ministry of meeting needs. And that wasn't once a week. Uh, friend, you've probably already eaten today. And chances are you're going to eat again today. And maybe several more times. Food is a physical daily need. And those widows had to get fed every day. And as they were fed every day, then the unity of the church would be preserved because the grounds for the murmuring would be resolved. And the apostles would remain focused on preaching and praying. It makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? It's, it's a rather brilliant plan. Now, these verses never formally call the seven deacons. The word isn't used. The seven were appointed for a special task or office, though. And although the word deacon doesn't occur, there was clearly some relationship that those seven had to each other, that they had to the apostles, and that they were given a specific task or role to fill. And so while Acts 6 doesn't call the seven deacons, 
most people throughout the last 2,000 years of church history have come to see that this was at least the, the, the genesis of what would become later in the New Testament, the appointing of, of pastors for preaching and teaching and prayer and the deacons for very significant, important, often urgent need addressing. Pastors give themselves to prayer, study, preaching, teaching, and deacons come to spearhead all the practical, significant, major ministry needs of the church. As the church grew in the first century, that's what we find in books like Philippians, where it's expressly written to uh, the people who made up the church, including the elders and the deacons. As a church grows and the needs develop, there must be flexibility to address needs as they come up. There must be a flexibility of restructuring. Anytime a church becomes too rigid, where the way things we've always done becomes the way they must be done, well, that's going to end up causing problems. There's got to be fluid in the joints of a church such that the body can continue to move. And this morning, I'm really encouraged, just practically speaking, to tell you that we have so many wonderful deacons, and most of them operate and function behind the scenes. And so they didn't see this coming, or they might have tried to persuade me otherwise. But we've got pictures of all of them, and I want to take a minute to thank them and to explicitly mention them by name. And one of those deacons is here in the room with me. She's helping run the camera, and she's shaking her head no right now at me. So, mm, what are you going to do about it, Amber Ward? Let me tell you who the deacons we have as a church are. You'll see some slides uh, coming up here. In the first picture, you'll see David Brown and Ming Chen. David Brown and Ming Chen. David oversees iHelp. iHelp is the ministry that... Um, houses uh, homeless people a couple of nights a month. David oversees that. Thank you, brother. And Ming, Ming has worked with um, internationals, I think, since Arizona was constituted as a state. So thanks, Ming. Great job, brother. Ming came to Christ through that ministry and then has continued to serve. What an incredible thing. On the next slide, after David and Ming, you'll see John and Pat. John, your beard is my aspirational goal. Thank you, brother, for giving me such a ZZ Top model of what I long to be. John works with the properties. Properties, that could be a full-time job. John didn't have a beard when he began, and uh, now he does. Pat, Pat Nickel, has uh, served with the church as a deacon in the area of benevolence. Pat is one of the people right now that if you write into the email address, help, H-E-L-P, at churchonmill.org, if you write into that email address and say, I have a need, would you help me with that need? Pat is one of the people helping to organize that. Thank you, Pat. A couple more slides with more deacons. The next one has Dave Oaks and a Jessica Oaks. Dave Oaks and Jessica Oaks. These are the only deacons who are allowed to sleep together because they're married. Dave Oaks and Jessica Oaks. Dave works with the youth. 
and Jessica works with the children's ministry. Thank you both for the ministry that you do, and your children are quite embarrassed right now, probably. On the next slide, you'll see Megan and Stephen. Megan works with our preschoolers, and church, you are ever making more of them. Megan, thank you for what you do in terms of serving and helping with the preschoolers. Stephen helps make sure that the, the money that is donated is um, principally and protected and cared for and put into the right places. Thank you, Stephen, for the work that you do. On the last slide, uh, we have, but certainly not least, Katina and Amber. Katina is the Deacon of Women's Mentoring and Discipleship, and Amber is the Deacon of Corporate Worship. Uh, Church on Mill, these are your deacons. They serve hours and hours and hours every week, and we're so thankful for them. They provide the backbone of the practical ministry needs of the church. And in addition to them, there's uh, another whole group that make up your staff who uh, are giving their lives to making less than they would elsewhere in order to serve more than they would if they were working in some other profession. And they labor because they love you and want to provide all the practical needs and leadership of the church. I hope, uh, brothers and sisters, the next time you see a deacon or staff member that you'll thank them for what they're doing uh, behind the scenes. It won't be long until a couple of these deacons will be rotating off, and uh, we're excited to tell you that we'll be uh, proposing a couple new deacons to become part of the deacon ministry. So even in the pandemic, uh, there are still training happening, and uh, we'll look forward to real soon uh, telling you about some of those changes. Now, in conclusion this morning, um, why is all of this such a big deal? I mean, beyond just the historical value of seeing Acts chapter 6 and understanding, oh, my church isn't the only one that got messed up. Here in Acts 6, there was a problem very early on. Beyond just that historical value, why does this matter? Well, very quickly, let me give you three reasons. Number one, it matters because there is a God worthy of all glory. And the church of Jesus Christ is his very body, the body of Christ. And how the world thinks about Jesus will be principally determined today by how the body of Jesus acts and behaves. So the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ is at stake in how the body acts and behaves. If the majority doesn't treat the minority well, then why would the world believe the love of Jesus Christ? Friends, this matters because Jesus matters. A second reason this matters is because there is a gospel, and that gospel is the very good news, the very power of God to save. As we, as brothers and sisters, behave in such a way that we're laying down our lives for each other, we're serving, we're sacrificing, then we are adorning that gospel. We are growing up in that gospel. And we're also giving occasion to announce that gospel to unbelievers. And finally, a third reason, why does this text matter? It matters because there is a people so desperately in need of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Friends, we show the gospel to be true by how we treat each other. And part of that is the church having good godly structure so that we're not constantly stumbling on each other and there's not needs which are being failed to be met. That's why Acts chapter 6 matters. I hope this morning uh, you've been reminded and been encouraged about what you are a part of, about what you are helping to make happen. Thank you, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for what we've learned this morning. We pray that Church on Mill would be a church among whom the gospel is rightly seen, the gospel is rightly proclaimed, its effects are rightly demonstrated. We pray, Lord, if there is any way in which there is a minority not being cared for well among us today, that you'd help us to see it, to repent of it, to reorganize in order to meet that need. We thank you for these wonderful deacons that you've provided, for the staff members who serve so faithfully, for um, all the ministry teams, and then, of course, ultimately for every member who contributes in their own unique way to make sure your gospel's heard, your gospel is adorned, your name is lifted high. And we pray you would help us to grow and to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.